Now let us assume for just a moment this morning that Jesus is the kind of God that many people desire him to be and many people believe him to be. And by that I mean the God who grants our every desire. Like the old genie in the bottle who is summoned up at our request and grants our every wish. Jesus is there to meet our need. All you have to do is ask. Now, if that were true, if that is the kind of God that Jesus is, what would be your wish? What would it be that you would ask for knowing that it would indeed be answered? And I'm going to narrow the focus down just a little bit, not giving you the, the proverbial three wishes, but just one. If you had one wish, one desire that was guaranteed to be answered by Jesus, what would that request be? I think many of us would immediately think of a physical need healing for ourselves or for that of a loved one or family member. And the reason I say that is because health concerns seem to dominate our thoughts and our prayers. If you get our daily prayer list, it doesn't take you long to realize that 90 plus percent of the requests on our prayer list are physical in nature. That is, they have something to do with someone being sick and desiring healing And if you attend our Wednesday night service, you know that that same percentage is true for those requests that are given on Wednesday nights, which tells me that what we think about, at least those things that we voice when someone close to us is sick, is that we desire healing. I have often said that seminary should include an introductory course in medicine for would-be pastors. That is because we hear much more about someone's ailments, their prescriptions, and the side effects of whatever it is they're going through. We talk more about that than we do the spiritual needs of people we visit, which begs the question, are we more interested in, are we more concerned about our physical needs rather than the spiritual side of our lives? Well, perhaps you might be thinking that that question was a bit tricky. After all, you already know Christ as your Savior and Lord. That is, you have been saved at some point in the past by repenting of your sins and by trusting in Christ. So you have already been given spiritual life. And since we believe in eternal security, that is, once you are genuinely saved, you are eternally secure, then that is settled. And therefore, that is why your request was not spiritual in nature. But I do have to remind you that you did not ask for spiritual growth or greater intimacy with Christ. And of course, I realize that I'm making all this up because you didn't voice whatever it is your wish was to begin with. I'm just assuming that that's what you would answer. My point is simply that it is easy to want Jesus for what he will do for us or what he will give to us rather than wanting Jesus for who he is to want His power and the miracles that flow from His power more than actually wanting Him. Like a child that crawls up into the lap of his grandfather because he knows a present awaits him. And when that present is received, he immediately hops down off of the lap and goes on about playing on his day. It is important for us to acknowledge that tendency and that temptation 
before we start reading the stories in the first century and before we start pointing fingers at those who appear to only want Jesus for what he can give them. In our study of Mark's gospel, we began by acknowledging that Mark's purpose, he tells us this in verse 1, Mark's purpose is to present to us Jesus as the Son of God and then to show us that indeed that is who he is. And he's going to show us that by not only the things Jesus said, but certainly by the things that he did. And then last week we looked at Jesus coming and proclaiming the kingdom of God is at hand. And then the second main element of his proclamation was the gospel of God, which he described with two words, those words, repent and believe. But rather than focus on that spiritual message of repent and believe, we are going to discover that there was a lot of people in and around Jesus that were not concerned about that. Rather, they were concerned about their, spirit, about their physical health and about their food about the daily needs that were in their life rather than the gospel. Now, those needs are important, don't misunderstand me, but they pale in comparison to the spiritual needs that we find in our lives. So let's take a look at Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 29 and going down through the rest of this first chapter as we look at the power dynamics that surrounded the life and ministry of Jesus. Mark 1, verse 29. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her, and he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases, and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak, because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And a leper came to him, imploring him and kneeling, uh, said to him, if you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity. He stretched down his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it. And to spread the news, so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places, and people were coming to him from every quarter. 
Now, I want to begin by talking about power displayed in the life and ministry of Jesus. And again, I've said that Mark's goal is to show us Jesus, the Son of God, and he is going to do that in part by showing us the power that is displayed in the person of Jesus. Now, to do that this morning, we are going to look at the three healings or three miracles that we find in these verses. Last week, we ended in verse 28 with uh, the comment from Mark that the fame of Jesus was spreading throughout all Galilee, and now we are going to see the results of that very verse. And so he leaves the synagogue, and he goes to the home of Peter and Andrew. He is with Peter and Andrew, James and John, the four disciples that we saw were called last week from their life of fishing to a life of discipleship and ultimately a life of fishing for men. And if you were here last week, you may remember that I showed you three pictures from our time in Israel. There was a picture of the Sea of Galilee. Secondly, there was a picture of the ruins of the city of Capernaum and the city in which we're in in this story. And that city sits on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. And then the third picture was the ruins of the synagogue there in Capernaum. Now, what you could not see in those pictures is this. The ruins of the synagogue are virtually next to the ruins of the city of Capernaum. I mean, just a few yards away, if you were to look at those pictures, you would see that the synagogue is over here on the left, and then right here is the ruins of Capernaum, and then right next to those ruins are the ruins of the house of Simon and Andrew. I could have shown you a picture of that, but frankly, it's not very impressive. There is a church built over those ruins now, and the picture is simply the rock or ruins underneath that church. But my point is, this is all right there together, or as we say, a stone's throw away. So Jesus has not gone very far from that synagogue to the home of Simon and Andrew, a home that there is evidence became a gathering place in the first century for Christians, if not a house church, and in all likelihood became the de facto home of Jesus. I mean, look at verse 1 of chapter 2. And when he returned to Capernaum, after some days, it was reported that he was at home. But Jesus didn't have a home. Jesus himself said, the birds of the air have nests and the foxes have dens, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And yet here it says that Jesus was at home. And most believe that it is the home of Simon and Andrew that that is referring to. And so we haven't traveled very far from where we were last week to where we are today to find this first healing in the ministry of Jesus in this particular text. There's three of them we're going to look at today, and this is the first of the three, and it is the healing of Peter's mother-in-law. Probably the shortest miracle story in all of the Gospels. I told you last week that Mark is the shortest of the Gospels, and as a result, he does not give us a lot of detail, certainly not as much as Matthew and Luke. And that is an understatement in this story because he tells us virtually nothing he just tells us that Jesus went into the home. They told him Peter's mother-in-law was lying down with a fever. He reaches out and grabs her hand and helps her up, and she is healed. We do not know exactly what the illness was. It is simply a fever. There were numerous illnesses that could have been described with that term. 
We know that in the first century there was the idea that an illness was, the, was uh, by demons, that is a demon was the cause of it, or it was divine punishment. And frankly, we still have that belief today. There are many people who still hold on to that idea that when they are sick, it is because God is punishing them in some way. Though that is not necessarily biblical, there is that idea. And we see here that this mother-in-law was lying sick Jesus comes along and helps her up, lifts her up. And that word for lift up is actually the same word that is translated elsewhere, raised up. It's the same word that is used in the resurrection. There are no spells. There are no incantations. There are apparently, according to Mark, not even any words spoken. And yet the woman is immediately and completely healed, as is evidenced by the fact that she begins serving them. And by the way, here is another nugget about discipleship. Those who are healed by Jesus serve him. Here in the shortest miracle story is this kernel of truth that when Jesus heals you, service to him and for him is the natural result. Now some try to make this even negative. They say, well, Jesus only healed the woman because he needed to be served. And Jesus wanted her to fix supper or whatever it is she was doing. And he needed that, and so he heals her. But that is certainly not the way we ought to take this story. That word for service is not derogatory. It is not a negative term. In fact, it is the same word we've already seen in chapter 1 where it said the angels were ministering to Jesus in the wilderness. That's the same word. So Peter's mother-in-law is now ministering to Jesus and these early disciples. The second healing is found in verses 32 through 34, and this time it is the crowds, and as such, it is actually many healings. I am simply grouping them into one. Word is spreading, so when the sun goes down, the crowds arrive. Now, why do they wait until the sun goes down? Because that means that the Sabbath is over with. The Sabbath runs from sundown on Friday until sundown on Saturday, and so we are now at sundown on Saturday. With the Sabbath being over, they are now able to travel greater distances without violating the law, and they can bring their sick. They can carry their sick if need be, and therefore they begin to arrive at Peter and Andrew's home, hoping that Jesus will heal them or their friends, even as they have no doubt heard or seen him do for others." And that is exactly what Jesus does. They bring their sick, and Jesus heals them. They bring those who are possessed by demons, and Jesus casts them out. Now, we are tempted to make a distinction in this text between the fact that it says they brought all of their sick, and Jesus healed many of them. Because to us, the words all and many are two different things. But there is no distinction in this text. It is not saying that Jesus healed some, but not all. There is an equality between the words all and many. So when they brought them, Jesus healed them. Which, of course, begs the question. Why doesn't he do the same today? Why hasn't he healed you? Or why hasn't he healed that loved one that you have been praying for? That loved one who, even as I speak, might be in the hospital or a nursing home or at their bed at home, and you and other family members have prayed for them probably for a very long time, and yet they have not been healed. We read stories like this, and we want to be part of it. We want to do the same thing, bring our sick to Jesus and expect that he is going to heal them as well. 
After all, the Bible is very clear that God does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so we read of Him healing all who are brought to Him. We know that God is the same, so why hasn't He healed us? And though this is not a complete answer, and we will dive into this more in the future as we will have multiple opportunities to try to address this nagging question You do have to remember that this is a unique time during the ministry of Jesus when he is seeking to demonstrate who he is by the power that he displays. And that power is often seen in miracles or in healings. And I say it's unique because at this time in history, Jesus has done that in a much more unique way, and that is through his resurrection. Because Jesus has died, because he has paid the penalty for our sins because he has conquered death and rose again in that display he has demonstrated his power and that he is the son of God so that there is no longer the ongoing need to demonstrate his power through miracles and healings now having said that I am not saying that he cannot heal I am not saying that he will not heal I am simply saying that this is a unique time in the history of uh, the world and the history of Jesus' ministry, whereby he was doing so in a greater way to demonstrate his power. Now let's drop down a few verses and look at the third instance of healing. We've seen Peter's mother-in-law. We've seen the crowds where generically it simply says they brought the sick and they were healed. This third healing in this text is in the life of a leper in verses 40 through 42. Now, leprosy was a skin disease that really incorporated a variety of types. It's actually still a problem to some. It is today called Hansen's disease. It still affects a couple hundred people in the United States every year, and some 250,000 people worldwide are diagnosed with this every year. So it's not gone away, but it is minimized. But in this day, it was a multitude of skin issues. Scribes said that there were up to 72 different types of skin diseases that could fall under the label of leprosy. But it wasn't just a physical issue. It wasn't just a physical disease. Lepers were outcasts, having to live outside of the city. They lost their name, they lost their occupations, they lost family and friends, they they lost the opportunity to worship with their community. They lost everything other than fellowship with other lepers. That's the only people they were allowed to associate with. Josephus, the Jewish historian that lived shortly after Jesus' life, described lepers as uh, in no way differing from a corpse. He's basically calling them the walking or living dead. And religious leaders of the day believed that healing leprosy was just as difficult as raising someone from the dead. In fact, healing is not even the right word. Did you notice in verses 40 through 42 that the word healing is not found? Instead, we find the word clean. Leprosy could not be healed. It had to be cleansed. And so this leper asked for cleansing. If you will, will you make me clean? And you can read more about this if you want to. Leviticus chapter 13 and 14, two entire chapters in the Old Testament on leprosy and how to deal with it. And as we read through the Bible, you will come across those chapters in a few weeks. 
Though they will probably not be your favorite Old Testament chapters, but they do give us an indication of just how serious this was in Jesus' day. So this man comes to Jesus to be cleansed, and already in saying that, we notice that there is something not right. He's not supposed to be this close to Jesus. He's required to stay 50 paces away from everyone else, and when he comes Within that distance, he is required to continually shout, unclean, unclean, to let everybody know that he is contaminated and therefore to stay away from him. But notice in verse 40, his faith. He doesn't question the ability of Jesus to cleanse him. He does question the willingness. That is, I know you can, but I'm not sure if you will. So the ability is there, he knows that, but is Jesus willing? And Jesus says, yes, I'm willing. And he reaches out and touches him, cleansing him immediately from his leprosy. Now the detail that he touches him is significant. That's not always the case. Jesus heals in many different ways in Scripture. Sometimes he touches, sometimes he doesn't. Sometimes he speaks a word, sometimes he's present, sometimes he's absent. There are a multitude of ways in which he heals, but this is significant because this man has not been touched since he's had leprosy. Now, we don't know how long that is, but we do know that as long as he's had leprosy, he has had absolutely no human contact until Jesus reaches out and touches him giving us an early indication that Jesus is more than willing to override social and religious norms if it means demonstrating compassion for those who need it. It is, often, it is also significant because this man uh, ha- has not been, been encountered like this in, in a very long time. And Jesus doesn't get leprosy by touching him Jesus doesn't get contaminated, as they were afraid of. Instead, this man gets cleansing because Jesus touched him. So the ministry of Jesus is going great. I mean, who wouldn't want all of this? He is is cleansing. He is healing. He is exercising demons. Word is spreading. People are coming. The crowds are swelling. These four new disciples must be ecstatic that they have been invited to be a part of this and wondering about what the future holds with this miracle worker that they are so recently attached to. Surely it's only going to get better from here. But you know that when there is power, there is also the potential for problems. So power displayed leads us to talk about power distorted. You may have noticed something strange in between the second and third healing. After that night of healing, and it must have gone late into the night because they didn't come until after sundown, and there were many who were healed, and so we presume it goes late into the night, and yet Jesus rises very early in the morning while it is still dark, and he goes to a desolate place. And that's the same word we've seen In the wilderness, when Jesus was tempted by the devil, although there are no deserts surrounding Capernaum, so here it must mean that he's going to a solitary place, the opportunity to be alone, away from the city and away from the crowds and the people, and what does he do there? He prays. Now, we mentioned 
week one of this year, not in the series with Mark, but week one of January, I preached about prayer, and I said there that prayer was an important part of the ministry of Jesus. We think about Jesus' ministry, and we think about teaching, or we think about healings. But prayer was a vital part of his ministry as well. And in spite of that, Mark only lists three occasions where Jesus prays. Obviously, one is here. The second one is after the feeding of the 5,000, another tremendous miracle. And immediately after the feeding of the 5,000, when they come back and they want more, Jesus is nowhere to be found because he's gone off by himself to pray. And then obviously the third time that Mark mentions Jesus praying is in the Garden of Gethsemane. All three of these occasions are at night, though here, of course, it's very early in the morning. It is still dark. All three are in the face of opposition. That is, there is someone who is pressing onto Jesus, and therefore he gets away by himself. And all three occasions speak about him being alone in a solitary place for prayer. And so for the first of several times, we see Peter exercising his leadership. This is new for all of them, but already we see that Peter is the leader of these four, and we know from his ministry that he winds up being the leader of the twelve. And so when he wakes up in the morning and Jesus is not there, Peter takes it upon himself to form a search party, which we presume includes the other three disciples, and he begins searching for Jesus. Now, of course, we think that's a good thing. Anytime someone is searching for Jesus, that's good, right? Not necessarily. The word here is actually a word that is often used to speak of searching for someone with hostile intent. Or for those hunters who are with us this morning, searching and hunting for prey. So Peter leads this search party, and when they find Jesus, again, for the first of several times, Peter demonstrates a misunderstanding of the mission of Jesus. Now, later on, we can be critical of that, but here we understand. I mean, he's new to this. He does not yet know what Jesus is all about and what his ministry is supposed to do. And so he finds Jesus, and here's what Mark records him as saying, Jesus, everyone is looking for you. But clearly, there's more behind those words. What he really means is this, what are you doing here? Jesus, don't you know that we had a great time last night? That the crowds were coming and you were healing them and they are going to come back this morning. Of that we're certain. And when they come back, you need to be there because you need to heal some more people. You need to cast out some more demons. Jesus, your fame, your name is already spreading and it's only going to spread more if you will continue this. So we need to get back to town so that you can do what you do best, and that is display your power. What a huge opportunity this seems to be. you got to strike while the iron's hot. you got to take advantage of the ministry opportunities that are in front of you. And so I mentioned a moment ago that all three occasions in Mark's gospel where Jesus is alone and praying, it is in response to opposition to him. And you ask yourself, well, where's the opposition here? The opposition is these four disciples. They don't mean to be opposed to Jesus. I'm not accusing them of that. But unwittingly, they are opposed to the ministry of Jesus at this point because they are trying to direct him. 
They are trying to tell him what to do. Yes, they are seeking after Jesus, but they are not doing so for the right reasons. The crowds are coming and showing up, but they too are not doing so for the right reasons. Discipleship is not about us telling Jesus what to do and trying to control him so that he does what we want him to do. Discipleship, in its very definition, is us following him. And Peter and these other disciples are not doing that at the moment. The power Jesus used to display is now being distorted by everyone around him. As I said, an early example of misunderstanding his mission, a mistake they will make repeatedly until after the resurrection. Jesus, of course, is not going to fall prey to their wishes. As I said, a disciple does not control the Lord. He leads us. So notice what Jesus says. Peter is adamant, we need to get back to town. And Jesus says, it's time for us to go elsewhere. Let us go to other towns so that I might continue to preach. In fact, he says, that is why I have come. I want you to understand at this very early stage in the earthly ministry of Jesus, at the very beginning of this year and a half of his Galilean ministry, his mission is not to heal as many people as he can possibly heal. His mission is to preach that the kingdom of God is at hand. His mission is to preach the gospel of God, which as he's defined it is repent and believe because he has not come primarily to heal us of our physical ailments. He has come to redeem us from sin. Now that is not to say that Jesus does not care about your physical situation. But it is to say that your spiritual life is of more importance Jesus is not primarily interested in attracting an audience of miracle seekers, people who want to see the sensational and as a result will always want more and never be satisfied with what they see. He wants people who will follow him because he is the Messiah and has come to save us from our sins. And isn't it amazing that in spite of all of the changes throughout the years, the hearts of people are largely the same. If a preacher comes today claiming the power to heal, whether that power is legitimate or manipulated is not my point. If a preacher comes with the claiming the power to heal, he will no doubt attract large crowds and sell out auditoriums because that is what people want. But let a preacher come preaching the simple message of repent and believe that you might be saved from your sins and the crowds will dwindle away even as they did in Jesus' day. Numbers are not always an accurate sign of success. Sometimes they are evidence of misplaced priorities and Jesus was not going to allow his mission to be deterred or his power to be distorted. And so he says, I'm not going back where the crowds are, which seems extremely odd to us. But he's making sure he is not distracted even by his disciples from what he came to do. But there's a third thing I want you to see. And that is for a time at least, it was temporary, no doubt, but for a time at least, his power was derailed. Jesus' ministry was affected by primarily this third healing, and it was affected in a negative way. In verse 34, he stops the mouths of the demons and tells them that they are not allowed to say anything. 
We can somewhat understand this. Jesus does not want his enemies speaking about his ministry, even if what they had to say was factual. But we live in a day where the prevailing thought is that any publicity is good publicity. As long as it gets your name out, it is good. I suppose that's why people don't mind posting embarrassing videos about themselves with the desire for that video to go viral. Because even if it makes you look bad, as long as your name gets out, that's what's important. But Jesus does not subscribe to this modern model of marketing. But what's harder for us to reconcile is what Jesus tells the leper when he has, when he has cleansed him. He tells him to go to the priest and show himself. That's normal. Only the priest could declare someone clean. And so if someone thought they were clean, they were required to go to the priest. And the priest had to go through some things in order to declare them clean. Now, you know that priests had responsibilities in Jerusalem in the temple, but that only lasted a week or two a year. They rotated in those responsibilities. And so the rest of the year, the priest was back in his hometown doing other kinds of ministry. And Josephus, again, a man who lived shortly after the life of Jesus, tells us that in his day, there were some 20,000 priests in Palestine. So there, there were priests everywhere. And so this man was told, as the law of Moses prescribed, to go to the priest and show himself. And the priest could declare him cleansed. And then later, when he goes to Jerusalem, Jerusalem, he could offer his sacrifice according to the law of Moses. Again, all of this is spelled out in Leviticus. And none of this is shocking. It would have been what any leper would have done had they thought themselves to be cleansed. The shocking part comes in verses 43 and the first half of verse 44. To be honest here, the language is rather strong. In fact, it comes across as rude. If this were not Jesus, we would say that this is extremely rude because Jesus tells the man to leave. It's almost like he's shoving him out the door, and as he's shoving him out the door, he's telling him, keep your mouth shut in the process. Do not tell anyone of what has happened here today. Why does Jesus seem so intent on working against himself? That's the way it comes across to us. He's suppressing the power that he's just displayed because he tells the leper not to tell anyone. Why would Jesus do this? Well, this too is actually a recurring theme in Mark's gospel, something that we will see as we go along. And it has been described by theologians as the messianic secret. On multiple occasions, Jesus tells people whom he has just healed, don't tell anyone. There are times when he tells his disciples, don't tell anyone. There are times when he acknowledges that he is teaching in parables so that people won't understand what he's saying, which makes absolutely no sense to us because we believe that in order to communicate to somebody, they've got to understand what you're saying. And of course, we believe that the gospel is good news as it is, and therefore it is to be proclaimed to all. So why does Jesus repeatedly tell people, at least during the early part of his ministry, not to say anything? Well, part of it is something what we've already been discussing, and that is he's trying to make sure that he is not seen primarily as a miracle worker. That is not his main mission, and that is not his main ministry, and he wants to make sure that that doesn't come across. 
Surely another important aspect here are the false ideas about the Messiah. We've talked about this before. The prevailing thought in that day was that the Messiah who was to come was going to be a political leader, maybe even a political revolutionary, a social reformer who was going to overthrow the Romans and therefore release the Jews. And because that is the prevailing view of what the Messiah was going to be, and we know that that's not who Jesus was, but if Rome gets word that there is a self-proclaimed Messiah, that's what they're going to think of, and Rome might just shut down his ministry really before it ever gets off the ground. There might also be the aspect of the fact that the Messiah came as a humble servant, not as a victorious king. That he needed time to teach his disciples what he truly was and is before they bought into the false ideas and many are led astray. And so for these reasons and perhaps others in these early years, there is this command to keep quiet. And yet the leper does not obey. Instead, he, he talks freely and spreads the word. And as a result, the power of Jesus' ministry is temporarily derailed because he is forced to stay outside of town, and his primary ministry of preaching the kingdom and the gospel in the synagogues he is not able to do for a time because were he to go into the cities, the crowds would overwhelm him. And so because this leper did not obey, his ministry is temporarily suspended, at least that ministry in the synagogues. And the irony here is that this healing begins with the leper as an outcast. Remember, I said that's what leprosy did. They were forced out of town to live as outcasts. And now, at the conclusion of this healing, Jesus is the outcast. The leper is in town telling everybody, and Jesus is now forced to be outside of town as an outcast, and people have to come to him. There is another irony in this messianic secret, this idea that Jesus would tell them not to say anything, and yet often they disobeyed him. We are reminded that this command is not given to us. We have the opposite command, and that command is very clear, that we are to go and tell. And yet how often do we remain silent disobeying the command that has been given to us, and in the process, wind up derailing the power of the ministry of Jesus, even as we see in this text. You say, how's that? Well, the Bible makes it very clear that no one can believe unless they hear, that they cannot hear unless someone tell them, and it is our responsibility to tell them. And so as long as we remain silent, we too derail the power of Jesus in the lives of people who need to hear the gospel. Now my question is, is it possible that our mindset is very much like the crowds of the first century coming to Jesus and expecting to be healed? Caring more about our physical needs than we do about the command to repent and believe, which is at the heart of the gospel and therefore at the heart of the reason Jesus came. And I made very clear last week that that is an ongoing issue in the life of a believer. It is not a one-time thing that we repented and believed in the past. It is something we continue to do in the present and should do in the future. And so if you are a believer here this morning and yet you find yourself frustrated, Frustrated that you or a loved one have not been healed. 
And as a result, you have become, you have become discouraged, perhaps even filled with doubt. You're saying very much the same thing as the leper. I know Jesus can heal, but he doesn't seem willing to because I've prayed and no healing has come. I want you to understand this morning that you have been healed. Again, as a believer, you have been healed of the most damning disease known to mankind, which, if left untreated, will in fact damn you for all eternity. Leprosy in the Bible is often symbolic of sin. And like leprosy, sin's effects go much deeper than the skin. And like leprosy, it spreads and defiles the whole person. And again, like leprosy, it often isolates us from God and sometimes others. And ultimately, it leaves us fit only for the fire. And yet, Jesus came to cleanse us from sin and to cover us with righteousness and to turn our isolation from God into intimacy with God. And so you have been healed. You have been healed of a disease much greater than the common cold or even cancer or dementia. And the results of your healing are far more glorious and far more long-lasting than any physical healing you might experience. So no believer should ever wonder why Jesus won't heal me. Because he has. He has healed you from the disease of sin and given you life eternal. Now for the unbeliever, that is those not united to Christ, I do need you to understand the urgency of the situation. Your greatest problem is not your job or the lack thereof. Your greatest problem is not your bank account. Your greatest problem is not whatever ailment you are going through or your loved one is going through, though that might be why you came this morning. You might have come today thinking to yourself, I want Jesus to do this for me, and if I show just a little effort on my part by showing up to church, maybe that obligates Jesus to heal me or give me what I want. And so you came hoping that God would fix your problems if you just showed up to church a time or two. The good news is that God does want to heal you. Even as we saw in this story of the leper who says, I know you can heal, I'm not sure if you will. And I'm telling you this morning that God is willing to heal you. But I am not talking about your cold or your cancer. I'm talking about the disease which he came to remedy, and that is the disease of sin. I am not here to promise you physical healing. That might come, it might not. We are never promised that in this life. But I am promising you on the power of Jesus and his word that if you cry out to him, repenting of your sins, and turn to him in belief, he will heal you of your greatest sickness, and that is the sickness of sin, and he will give you the greatest victory, and that is victory over sin and death, and you will have the opportunity, glorious as it is, to live with him forever, and that is far more important and far more glorious than whatever sickness you came here with this morning hoping that that he might solve. Let's pray.